Okay, so it's uh, 12.30 and uh, time to start. Uh, welcome everyone to this fifth edition of the Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover. I'm a partner with uh, Wright Constable and Skeen here in beautiful sunny downtown Baltimore. Uh, I'm joined today by Mr. Jason Potter. Jason's been practicing law for 10 years in the area of surety law, construction, commercial law. He's a Maryland super lawyer. Um, he's been involved in the surety industry. Currently, he's uh, co-chair of the Surety Claims Institute website and the uh, co-chair for their programs. And uh, he's our new technology czar for the Northeast Surety Claims Conference. And he's a graduate of the Ohio State University. So he's a little nutty. Right? Isn't that your mascot? Isn't your mascot a nut? Of some it, form? it is. The Buckeye. Yeah, the Buckeye. Yeah. Who comes yeah. up with a nut as a mascot? <laughs> so anyway, as you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professionals up to date and informed wherever you are. If you've got a phone or a computer, you can tune in. Uh, recordings of these calls are posted on our website. We also transcribe the recordings so you can read it rather than listen to it. And we've also begun posting... Uh, as podcasts on Podbean under Surety Today. Uh, the program is only offered to in-house folks. Uh, it's been pretty successful growing in popularity so far. We've had, we've issued 148 pins and uh, we've had a total of 170 people call in for the uh, prior episodes. We appreciate your support and ask that you um, pass along any, your contact, our contact information to any colleagues who might be interested so we can uh, reach even a broader audience. Uh, if you have any issues with the call, please contact Ms. Jeannie Hyatt at jhyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. We're going to mute the line during the presentation. Uh, I'm going to do that now. Okay, and that's just to cut down on any background noise. Um, you know, people working from home with the kids and dogs in the background, you know who you are. Uh, we are recording the presentation, as noted, um, and, and those will be posted a few days after the presentation on the website and the podcast. And, of course, at the end, there will be a question and answer period if, um, where we'll unmute the line and uh, you can ask any questions. Of course, if we don't like the questions, we might mute the line again and pretend like we can't <laughs> hear you, but who knows. <coughs> So, excuse me. So, uh, today uh, we're going to talk about um, um, non-dischargeability and bankruptcy and uh, some recent case law there. Um, and hold on here a second. Yeah. So basically, I'm going to start, or I'm going to start off with an, an overview of of what non-dischargeability and bankruptcy is. And then uh, Jason is going to talk about a recent case that has come down from the Supreme Court on non-dischargeability um, as, it, as it affects uh, surety uh, salvage um, rights. And that's partly what prompted this discussion today was the fact that in May the uh, Supreme Court came out with a, with a new decision on this area. And uh, it's something that we think uh, should be talked about. And then I'll follow up uh, and, and close out the presentation today with a discussion of the uh, Supreme Court decision in Bullock versus Bank Champagne, which is a 2013 decision also on non-dischargeability, which 
uh, really has some ramifications for sureties as well. And so we'll, we'll, we'll get into that too. So uh, I'll start off with, uh, with the overview of non-dischargeability. But in order to understand non-dischargeability, you have to first understand dischargeability. Uh, so a fundamental goal of the bankruptcy code is to give debtors a financial fresh start, so to speak. The Supreme Court observed long ago that the purpose of the bankruptcy system was to, quote, give the honest but unfortunate debtor a new opportunity in life and a clear field for future effort unhampered by the pressure and discouragement of pre-existing debt, end quote. The various bankruptcy chapters, 7, 11, 13, all provide for a discharge of the debtor. Section 524 of the Bankruptcy Code addresses the effect of the discharge and generally provides a discharge of the debtor which releases the debtor from personal liability for pre-existing debts. Specifically, Section 524 provides that the discharge of the debtor voids any pre-bankruptcy judgments against the debtor and operates as a continuing and permanent injunction against any enforcement or collection efforts of creditors of any debts that are subject to the discharge. The discharge under 524 of the Bankruptcy Code operates automatically by operation of law, and any violation of the discharge uh, by a creditor would be void, and uh, any violators would be subject to sanctions or uh, penalties. So notwithstanding the fresh start and the discharge goal of bankruptcy, Congress has provided in the Bankruptcy Code that Certain types of debt are not subject to the discharge, and thus they are non-dischargeable, which means that even after the bankruptcy, a creditor can pursue such debts against the debtor's post-bankruptcy assets. Section 523 of the Bankruptcy Code provides for exceptions to discharge, and it identifies some 21 types of debt that are not dischargeable. And when you look at these exceptions, um, they're very detailed. There's, there's all kinds of different things in there, but... Basically, there are two broad categories of, of, of debts that Congress has determined are, are uh, exceptions to discharge. And the first category are those that are excluded for public policy reasons. And so you have uh, things in the code like certain taxes that would be uh, ex exempt or an exception from discharge. Student loans are an exception to the discharge, and so are child support obligations. Uh, the second category of, of debt that is an exception to the discharge under 523 are debts that are, were created as a result of what, what you would generally call bad behavior. Uh, debts created by fraud, false pretense, intentional torts, etc. And so the courts have decided, um, you know, that all of these exceptions to discharge in furtherance of the general overall goal of providing a fresh start, that these exceptions to discharge under 523 are to be narrowly construed um, in order to uh, limit their effect and to you know, broaden the scope of the fresh start. But they're still there, and there's, there's quite a few of them. Uh, and so the party that is seeking non-dischargeability under 523 will bear the burden of proving the requirements by a preponderance of the evidence. So non-dischargeability can be important to a surety because it can establish that your debt is not discharged and you can continue to pursue collection post-bankruptcy. Maybe there's some assets that were not part of the bankruptcy that you could, you could get access to. Maybe the debtor has started a new company 
and you could get ac access to the, uh, the the funds coming off of that, uh, or, or you can use the the threat of uh, non-dischargeability as a negotiation tactic, either pre or post bankruptcy, in order to, excuse me, in order to uh, increase the surety's position. So. Uh, it has it has relevance. It, it's something that uh, I know a lot of surety people have dealt with, and we've had to deal with over the years. And so, whenever there's uh, important cases in this area, it's always good to talk about them. So, Jason, I'm going to turn it over to you uh, to start discussion of that uh, recent Supreme Court case. Sure, thank you. Um, so, Mike indicated that the person challenging dischargeability bears the burden of proving it, and that's done through what's called an adversary proceeding. So it, the debtor may list uh, certain debts, may let the creditor know uh, that that particular creditor is among the list of creditors, and that creditor can file what's called an adversary proceeding to challenge uh, the dischargeability of that debt. And that's what happened in a, in a recent case. Uh, the case was called Husky International Electronics versus Ritz. It was decided earlier this year, as Mike said, um, and it involved the interpretation of actual fraud as that term is used in the bankruptcy code. As Mike mentioned, actual fraud is one of the bases uh, for non-dischargeability uh, under the code. Um, and actual fraud is, is typically thought of as a situation where one uh, individual makes a representation to another individual, and the person making that representation knows it's false, knows at the time that the representation is false, and the defrauded party relies upon it to its detriment. And um, at least in my mind, one of the more prominent examples or clearer examples in the surety context um, is in the underwriting stage where the Principal uh, and indemnitors go to the surety to get bonds. They, make, they may make certain misrepresentations to the surety, whether it's about the amount of receivables, whether the amount of contracts it has, the value of certain property, whatever. And as a result of those misrepresentations, the surety issues bonds. That is typically the situation uh, involving actual fraud. In fact, that would be actual fraud under Maryland law as well. But in the, the Husky situation, uh, the Husky case, it involved a slightly different take on actual fraud because it involves uh, the fraudulent transfer of assets, what's commonly referred to as a fraudulent conveyance. A fraudulent conveyance is slightly different because in a fraudulent conveyance situation, uh, an individual may transfer property or money or, or other assets, and it's specifically for the purpose of uh, defrauding creditors. Um, there's no actual misrepresentation made and there's no reliance by the defrauded creditor. Um, and, and so it's a slightly different take. In, in Husky, uh, Mr. Ritz uh, owned a corporation. He transferred a number, uh, a huge amount of corporate assets from one corporation to another corporation in order to evade corporate debt. Um, and the creditors of that corporation then filed suit against both the corporation and Mr. Ritz individually under a Texas law that allowed him to be personally liable for that debt. Now, as often happens, Mr. Ritz immediately filed bankruptcy once he was sued individually. 
Mr. Ritz uh, alleged that all that debt was dischargeable in bankruptcy, and the creditors filed an adversary proceeding uh, seeking to hold that that debt was non-dischargeable because it was actual fraud. The bankruptcy court disagreed, however, and it held that there was no actual misrepresentation made by the individual, and there was no reliance upon those creditors because it was a fraudulent conveyance. Mr. Ritz simply transferred huge, huge amounts of assets. He didn't make any representations whatsoever to the creditors. And in fact, any, any representations that he made were long after he transferred that debt. The bankruptcy court therefore held that fraudulent conveyances did not fall within the purview of the actual fraud exception and held that the debts were dischargeable. The creditors, of course, then uh, filed an appeal to the United States District Court and then to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, who also agreed with the bankruptcy court. And they held that in order for there to be actual fraud under the bankruptcy code, there had to be a fraudulent misrepresentation made by one to another and reliance by the other upon that to its detriment. The Supreme Court ultimately issued certiorari and in, an, in a decision earlier this year reversed. Um, it's a pretty, as Mike mentioned, it was a pretty significant case for sureties because it held that uh, in order for a debt to be non-dischargeable as actual fraud, there does not need to be an actual misrepresentation by the debtor to the creditor nor reliance by that creditor upon them any misrepresentation. It based, based its de de determination upon how courts have interpreted the term actual fraud going back hundreds of years. It first looked at the term actual in the term actual fraud and it held that actual, as federal courts have interpreted that term, actual fraud means moral turpitude or intentional wrong. Now that's important because it's distinguished between, from implied fraud or negligent misrepresentation in which there is no intent to deceive by the individual. The court held that anything that counts as fraud and is done with wrongful intent is actual fraud. The court then looked at whether uh, the court then looked at fraud to determine whether a fraudulent conveyance can constitute actual fraud. And it, again, went back um, to cases over uh, hundreds of years to find that courts traditionally in the federal uh, arena have held that fraudulent conveyances do constitute fraud. It therefore held that actual fraud can include a fraudulent conveyance provided there is an intent by the individual to deceive when it makes those transfers. Again, that's a significant holding for sureties because it extends the reach uh, of actual fraud uh, to situations where the indemnitors may work to evade uh, the surety, particularly in a salvage situation uh, where the sureties may try to recoup some of its losses uh, the typical situation may involve an individual that may hide corporate assets, may transfer money from one account to another. Uh, Pre-RITS, those debts may still be held to be dischargeable. However, after RITS, 
the surety can the surety can allege that such debts were uh, fraudulent concealment, they were fraudulent conveyances, and therefore the debts uh, should be held to be non-dischargeable. Now the case came out a couple of months ago. There hasn't been a lot of cases that interpret them, ter interpret the Ritz case, but but one I I thought was kind of interesting is a case out of the Tenth Circuit called In Ray Thompson. Now, Thompson was not a fraudulent conveyance case, but it did involve actual fraud uh, to somebody other than the creditor. In Thompson, uh, an individual who owned a nursing home facility uh, supplied certain applications to the state uh, to uh, create new nursing homes. And as part of that application process, that individual falsely stated that he would operate those nursing homes, that he would oversee and supervise those nursing homes. Um, and as a result of that application and those representations by that individual, the state granted a license to the company. An individual uh, within the nursing home ultimately died and her spouse subsequently sued the nursing home and the individual. The individual, of course, filed bankruptcy, alleged that any debt to the deceased uh, individual spouse was dischargeable, and the Tenth Circuit disagreed based upon, in part, the Supreme Court's holding in the Ritz case, because it said that the individual committed actual fraud to the state, the, individual, the state reasonably relied upon those representations, and as a result, it issued, it issued a license to the individual and the nursing home. It therefore held that the debt or any potential debt was not dischargeable. Now there may be certain situations, there may be certain lessons that we may as sureties and surety counsel gain from Husky and its progeny, um, and they really focus on intent. I mean, how do you how do you improve how do you prove intent? And it, it seems to me that the one, the, one of the easiest and most direct ways to prove it is to show knowledge on, on behalf of the party. So if you can show that the individual knew that they had certain obligations uh, and that they violated those obligations, that creates a strong case for showing fraud. How do you do that? How do you show knowledge upon the individual? Um, it seems to me that you can have that individual, when they sign the indemnity agreement, sign certain provisions in the indemnity agreement. When, when claims first come in to the surety, the surety should reach out to the indemnitors to make sure that they know about their obligations under uh, whatever common law exists in the jurisdiction as well as the indemnity agreement. And of course, we need to follow up with those uh, verbal communications with letters and or emails that document those conversations. In any post-default written understandings or agreements, we need to make sure that the indemnitors are on notice of their obligations to preserve funds, contract funds, and um, funds that they're obligated to preserve. Um, in any underlying litigation or subsequent litigation that precedes the bankruptcy, uh, draft pleadings and issue discovery aimed at showing or proving what the indemnitor's state of mind is. Show that they knew of their obligations. Show that they knew what their uh, show that they knew that they were uh, obligated to preserve that property and that they um, that they didn't abide by those obligations when they transferred it. And then once the bankruptcy uh, begins, there are the 2004 examination. There's the meeting of creditors at which the creditors can ask certain questions of the debtor. Uh, the creditor should aim to ask questions that 
should prove that the debtor knew of those obligations and that he acted to evade those obligations. Um, I'm going to hand the phone over to Mike now to talk about an earlier Supreme Court case that deals with a, a similar issue. Right. Thanks, Jason. So I'm going to discuss the Supreme Court case of Bullock versus Bank Champagne. The site is 133, 133 Supreme Court, 1754, and that was 2013. And that relates to a specific part of the uh, 523 non-dischargeability um, code section, uh, specifically code section 523A4, which provides that um, uh, an individual debtor is not discharged from any debt that was incurred by defalcation while acting in a fiduciary capacity. Thus, uh, if a debtor, while acting as a fiduciary, incurred a debtor liability as a result of the defalcation of their fiduciary obligations, then that debt would be excluded from a discharge. So the keys to 523A4 are whether there's a fiduciary capacity and whether defalcation occurred while the debtor was acting in his or her fiduciary capacity. Unhelpfully, the code does not define either fiduciary capacity or defalcation, and so uh, we're left to the courts to figure it out. So we'll look at these two keys to uh, 523A4 and then get into the, um, to the Bullock case. First key, of course, is fiduciary capacity. So from the very beginnings of the bankruptcy, and this is going back to the 1800s, the concept of fiduciary capacity has been narrowly defined by the courts. So, you know, there are lots of relationships where parties may be described as a fiduciary in one sense or another. So, for example, agents and principals, bailees and bailors, brokers, factors, partners uh, have all been, have all been um, treated in various state law as fiduciaries, but for purposes of 523, those are not uh, sufficient fiduciary capacities uh, in order to trigger non-dischargeability. Uh, relationships such, such as the trustee of a trust, executors or administrators of an estate, Guardians, those kinds of relationships are the kind of fiduciary relationship that the code is talking to. And of course, relevant for the sureties is, um, you know, is, is the trust, trustee-trust relationship fiduciary capacity because um, in, in many circumstances, sureties find themselves dealing with trust property in the bonded contract funds through a number of different sources. Now, not all trusts will satisfy 523. Only express or technical trusts will do the trick. And so things like constructive trusts or resulting trusts or implied trusts, uh, those cannot create the necessary fiduciary capacity under 523. The trust must exist prior to the bankruptcy and arise without reference to any wrongdoing. And so those, those types of things, constructive, resulting, implied trust, those are all sort of remedy-based trusts that apply after or as a result of the wrongdoing, whereas 523 is focused more on the fiduciary capacity of an existing trust relationship. So sureties, of course, can find trust in a variety of places. The indemnity agreement, for instance, construction contracts, the underlying bonded contracts, uh, through subrogation, the surety could assert rights to trust fund provisions in those documents uh, and trust fund statutes. There are many states that have uh, trust fund statutes, and the surety, again, through subrogation rights, could assert uh, trust obligations uh, through, through those statutes. You just have to be careful here 
uh, and review the documents or the, or, the, or the statutes that you're talking about to make sure that, that they create and express trust. And, and oftentimes, uh, there's different, um, and particularly in the trust fund statutes, they have all kinds of different uh, applicability. Some don't apply to commercial construction. Some don't apply if bonds were posted. Some don't apply to surety. So it's, you got to be you got to be careful with those. Um, and then the, the provisions themselves in the indemnity agreement or the construction contract. Uh, you, you know, the, the even though 523 is federal law and the bankruptcy court looks to federal law, but when the, when the court has to determine what are the property rights that are subject to the federal law, well, the court will look at state law on that. So, you know, you got to go jurisdiction by jurisdiction as to what is an express trust. Um, numerous courts have held that that Various trust provisions in the GAI and in uh, construction contracts uh, have created express trust, and there's there's plenty of cases out there for that. And then some courts have gone the other way, based on either the facts or based on the language of the documents themselves. So you have to you have to look at the issue of whether you've got an existing you know express trust. Um, let's see if you can establish the existence of the express trust and that the debtor was the trustee you'll have that necessary fiduciary capacity prong of the 523, you then need to establish uh, defalcation. So as noted earlier, the Bankruptcy Code does not define the term defalcation. As a result, several definitions have arisen over the years. The 4th, 8th, 9th, and 11th circuits have all held that defalcation under 523 could occur from a mere failure to meet a fiduciary obligation, whether it was through negligence or innocent mistake, it didn't matter. There really was no evidence of intent or recklessness required. Basically, if you were supposed to have 100 bucks in your account and you didn't and you were the fiduciary, that was defalcation for, for, uh, for those circuits. And then the 5th, 6th, and 7th circuits had developed a rule that required defalcation under 523 required more than just negligence there had to be some kind of willful neglect of duty, something short of fraud. You didn't have to have the intent to deceive or the gross extreme recklessness, but you had to have more than just mere negligence in order to constitute defalcation. And then the third position was espoused by the First and Second Circuits, which held that uh, defalcation required an intent to deceive, the typical C-enter that we would look for, or extreme recklessness in order to uh, satisfy the defalcation uh, prong of 523 and, and get non-dischargeability. So you've got this dramatic split among the circuits with all these different positions, and, uh, the, and the, the Supreme Court finally, in the, in the Bullock case, 2013, uh, uh, finally put to rest the split and, and came out with a, with a pretty tough standard, adopted the most uh, restrictive standard, um, Bullock was, um, the case itself, the facts were that uh, it was a typical self-dealing situation where the trustee, the debtor was a trustee of a trust, and he was basically taking loans out of the trust in, in part for his own personal benefit. Um, so the court looked at that, looked at the history of defalcation, looked at the split among the circuits, and ultimately held that defalcation under Section 523 requires conduct including bad faith, moral turpitude, or other immoral conduct or intentional wrongdoing. The court clarified that intentional wrongdoing includes not only conduct that the fiduciary knows is improper, but also reckless conduct. And it defined reckless conduct as a conscious disregard to a substantial and unjustifiable risk 
that the conduct will turn out to violate the fiduciary duty. Later in the, in the decision, the court defined it as a gross deviation from the standard of conduct that a law-abiding person would observe. So they really put that restriction there on, on the non-dischargeability for defalcation, and it's made the provision of 523, I think, a lot more unobtainable for most folks. So uh, Jason and I, along with uh, Jessica Wynn at Albert Crafton, and also Ms. Uh, Christina Craddock from Liberty, uh, put together a paper. It's a, it's a really good resource, and we'd like to send that to you uh, later after the uh, presentation. It's titled, New Standards Affecting the Surety's Use of Section 523 Non-Dischargeability and Bankruptcy, and that's a good uh, discussion of the bullet case and uh, all of the history and, and whatnot for that, that particular uh, 523 non-dischargeability aspect. So we'll get that out to you all, um, and you can take a look at that and see in more detail. We simply don't have time to go into it here. And that you know the, the practice pointers that, that, that Jason pointed out, I think are are relevant here too, because you know under the defalcation, you've got to establish that sort of intent, that willfulness. You've got to establish the knowledge that they were uh, trustees, that there was a trust relationship, and 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 all of that. So you know what you can do in advance uh, to to come up with that when you're doing the underwriting aspects, you're pointing out the trust fund provisions, you're you're maybe in the cover letter, you're telling them about it. Maybe when the first claim comes in, you, you've got your letter going to the indemnitor saying, hey, you all are trustees, you've got a trust obligation, and just get that out to them in that way. Um, you know, during the initial investigation, you're looking for uh, facts and information that are going to show this knowledge and show this intent to, uh, to, to violate the trust obligation. You want to make sure that you locate and preserve all the documents that are out there, particularly the electronic documents, emails, and all that are going to be critical uh, to showing what the parties were thinking at the time and why they were doing what they were doing. Um, so those are some sort of you know, general tips. So with that, I think we're done with the discussion. We just want to do a quick wrap-up and then question and answers. Um, the next edition of Surety Today will be October 10th uh, at 1230. The topic will be the surety's obligation to meet MBE requirements. I'm, I'm sure everybody's probably run into this where your subcontractor or general contractor goes down on a job and then you've got to come in and meet the MBE requirements, or do you? That's the question. Cindy Rogers, where and Lisa Sparks will, will be uh, presenting on that topic. Quick rundown, surety event coming up. September 14th is the Philadelphia Surety Claims Luncheon. September 21st through the 23rd, is the Northeast Surety uh, Claims Conference in Atlantic City. October 5th through the 7th, National Bonds in Hilton Head, South Carolina. Uh, November 9th through 11th is the FSLC Fall Meeting in Chicago. November 17th is the Atlanta Surety Claims Lunch Meeting. So uh, with that, we will unmute the line and um, open it up to the floor to Okay, looks like we had 41 people on the call, so somebody must have a question. Maybe not. We've yet, we haven't really had questions. There haven't been too many. Maybe that's because, you know, we, we're so thorough. Wait, I heard somebody laughing out there. That's not funny. <laughs> All right, folks, if there's no questions, we're going to go ahead and close out the call. Thank you again for, uh, for coming in, participating, and um, hope to talk to you soon. Thank you very much.
right. Thanks for your time, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Mike you. and Jason. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it.